Austin. I am so pumped uh, to be with you this morning. Before I get going, just a disclaimer. I sprained my ankle pretty bad yesterday playing basketball. Uh, so if I'm like limping around on stage, uh, don't worry about my overall health. I'm good. Uh, ball is life, and that's the cost sometimes. You sprain your ankle. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or if some of you just stare at the ankles of someone while they're speaking and you notice some asymmetry, want to make sure you know what's going on. So, hey. I have a question for you. Have you ever done something that was the complete opposite of what you were supposed to be doing? I didn't think so. I didn't think we'd have a lot of people in here, but I just, you know, wanted to give it a chance. Like maybe with a family member or a teammate or a friend or whatever, like you were supposed to be doing something together maybe even, and you spent time doing the complete opposite of what you were supposed to be doing, like destroying it. Uh, I, have a, I have a story. I have a twin brother. His name is Logan. Logan's actually here. Uh, he's right in the front row. Everyone, there's Logan. Lo- yeah, woo, give it up for Logan. Uh, Logan, not too much though, not too many claps. Logan and his wife Sarah, they just moved to Grand Rapids in August. They started coming to TLC. Uh, Logan and I, I'm super close with Logan. He's my best friend. Love Logan. Uh, but Logan and I are like cutthroat with each other. Uh, some people are very uncomfortable with our communication style, which can be a little harsh. Uh, and we are very, very, very competitive. Now, I have a picture of Logan and I. Oh. I know. Now, the story I want to tell you has nothing to do with that. But look at that picture. I mean, just look at it. I'm the one in the Barney. Look at that. Stunting on people on Halloween. And Logan looks okay, too. He's a Dalmatian, you know. Now, Logan and I, that's us. We're good buds. But we compete, like, nonstop. So when we were this age and even today, like, we'll just make competitions out of thin air and we'll do it, you know. Some of you have a relationship with your siblings like that. Now, I'm generally better at most things uh, than Logan. I mean, you heard him. He said yes, like, he's a green. Uh, but Logan is better than me at a few things. Like, for example, uh, he's much better in the water. So I, like, suck at swimming, holding my breath, like, treading water, anything. Like, I'm terrible at it. Logan's pretty good at it. Uh, and so when we were growing up and when we were in high school, like any chance Logan could get to do a competition in the water, you know, I mean, that's smart. You know, if somebody was beating you at most things, you'd take advantage of the thing that was like you're better at. So we were at a friend's house in high school. We were at a pool. And Logan was like, hey, let's do a treading water competition. And I'm like, I know I'm going to get trashed, but I'm like, I'm too prideful to like back down. So I'm like, all right, let's do it. So I jump in the water. We jump in the water. Now, when I jumped in the water, I felt a, a little half noodle, like those flotation noodles, you know. And uh, it, was, it didn't have enough buoyancy to float to the top so no one could see it. Logan couldn't see it. So, you know, I nabbed that thing, and I stuck it between my legs. And I was like, all right, let's go. I'm ready. Logan had no idea that I had a noodle in between my legs when we were about to start a, float, a treading water competition. So we start, okay? Now, I can usually only tread water for like two minutes maybe. Uh, but ten minutes goes by, and I'm like, I'm good. You know, and I'm good because I'm literally sitting in the water on a noodle. But I'm acting like I'm treading water and 10 minutes goes by and Logan's like, kind of, you know, you can see the surprise in his face. Like, dang, he doesn't even look tired. And 10 minutes goes by, then 20 minutes goes by. And I'm starting to really, you know, I'm, I'm embellishing a little. Got to make sure he doesn't know that I have a noodle. So I'm really acting like, you know, I'm so tired, but I'm just willing my way through this. Just going to power through. Like, my will is so strong, I'm going to beat you anyway. <laughs> and so 20 minutes goes by. 30 minutes goes by, and now I'm acting like I'm drowning, right? Like, I'm, I'm just like, oh, slapping the water. But I'm sitting in the water, okay? I got a noodle on. And so 30 minutes goes by, and Logan's, like, about to drown, okay? Like, 
He's not, any of you seen that movie, The Guardian with Ashton Kutcher? Like they tread water for like three hours because he's Ashton Kutcher. And Logan is not Ashton Kutcher. He's awesome, but he's not Ashton Kutcher. So he can only tread water for like 35 minutes, which is still really impressive. But eventually he's like about to drown. He gets out of the water. And after he's like totally absorbed the defeat, I pull the noodle out. <laughs> Can you imagine treading water for 35 minutes finding out that that person was sitting in the water the whole time? So I won, basically. <laughs> no, Logan was doing what we were supposed to be doing, like what we had agreed upon, right? But I was doing everything that I could to win. But also to like destroy the integrity of the whole thing. Like the competition didn't matter. It was over. It had been destroyed. And that's basically what's happening in our text for today in Exodus chapter 32. You see, Torin last week walked us through chapter 19 of Exodus where God proclaims his name. He reveals himself to the Israelites unlike ever before. And he, he establishes his covenant and his relationship with the Israelites. He marries Israel basically. Just a chapter later, he gives the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are basically written as wedding vows. That's what they appeared like. And then in chapter 24, Israel says, we do. You know, like they put the ring on their finger. They're like, okay, it's official. Like, we're in. They say, we do. And the covenant begins between Israel and God. The relationship is official. And then God tells Moses, Go up to the top of Mount Sinai. They're on this mountain called Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses, go up to the very top. I have some instructions I want to give for you. So from chapter 24 to chapter 31, God is basically just giving instructions to Moses on the life that they're going to build together. Instructions for the tabernacle and how to observe the Sabbath and all these different ways that God has designed it to be. He's basically telling Moses, this is how this relationship is going to go. This is how me dwelling in your midst is going to, to go. And where we pick up this morning, while this is happening at the top of the mountain, something terrible is going on at the base of the mountain, where we pick up this morning in the story in chapter 32. Any of you guys ever seen a movie where it's like really happy at the beginning, and it's going great, this new exciting thing is happening, and then you know like in an instant like it's all going to change, it's all going to be destroyed? Like I, I saw Frozen 2 this weekend, and uh, Elsa, it's so happy at the beginning, and then Elsa loses her powers. Oh, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Oh, can you imagine how terrible of a person I would be if I did that? Disclaimer, I am totally kidding. None of that happens. Seriously, okay, I'm, I'm being dead serious, none of that happens. I would, not, I would not spoil, I love you too much. I would never spoil it for you. I did see Frozen 2 though, that's a true story, and it was good. Olaf is really funny. Uh, so anyway, that's like what's happening in Exodus chapter 32, right? Like, while Moses is at the top of this mountain, he's giving instructions, God's giving him instructions on the life they're going to build together and the house that they're going to build together. The Israelites are at the base of the mountain tearing it all down. You see, Exodus 32 is a tragic comedy. Exodus 32 is the story of Israel betraying God on their honeymoon. So will you read with me? Exodus chapter 32, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made into, into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Remember that. That's a big deal. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. And then afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, who's at the top of the mountain, he said, Go down, because your people, whom you brought out of, up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bound down to it, sacrificed to it, and they've said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. That's kind of funny. God's basically com comparing them to a bull, like a slight bit of irony there. Now, leave me alone, God says, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God is angry. He's saying, I'm going to destroy all of them, Moses, I'm going to keep my promise, but I'm going to keep it with you. I've been pursuing these people for years and years and years. I've poured my heart out to them. I've led them out of Egyptian slavery. And all they, wanted, all they keep wanting to do is turn back, turn back to all the things I'm leading them out of. I'm done. God is angry. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. He said, O oh Lord, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say that it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses then turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. The story continues, which we'll get to, and Moses comes down and he actually drops those tablets. And then uh, he takes the golden calf and he totally disintegrates it, he burns it, disintegrates it, puts it into a powder and has the Israelites drink them and then drink it and then he has the Israelites, he gives them a chance to repent. And for the ones who repent, they, co they come to one side and then God tells them to go through the camp, go back and forth, which is a way of saying, go back and forth and give the Israelites another chance to repent. And for those who don't repent, I want you to destroy them, I want you to kill them. Now there are like seven sermons in this text, okay? First, Moses changes God's mind, it appears, which is like insane. And it's, it's really cool. We could talk about that, but we're not going to talk about that. We could also talk about, some people are like, well, why would God kill someone? Well, I can't even believe God would do that. I can't follow a God that would do that. There's like a whole other sermon in God's wrath. Some really cool stuff is going on. God's mercy, actually. Like, there's like hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and 3,000 of them are killed. And in the ancient Near East, people would have heard this story and told the Israelites, your God is weak. Why would he only kill 3,000? And so we could talk about that this morning as well, but we're not going to talk about that. We don't have time. You see, because this morning we're going to be talking about Exodus chapter 30, 34 and what the Israelites have done wrong. 
What have they done wrong? You see, when we hear the story for the first time, or maybe some of us who are familiar with the story, it's pretty quick and easy to judge the Israelites and say, well, man, the Israelites really messed up. They are worshiping a pagan god from Egypt that they had left. They're rejecting God entirely. It's a horrible act of rebellion. And while there might be some truth in this, I think that there's so much more going on in this story. You see, we've been talking for weeks now about how Exodus is the story of redemption in the Old Testament. Like, when the New Testament authors go to tell the story of Jesus and to tell the story of redemption, they do it with countless references to Israel and the Exodus. God is restoring the nation of Israel. He's leading them out of slavery and into freedom. But to experience that freedom, the Israelites had to leave somewhere. Because you can't go until you leave. And sometimes leaving is a lot harder than it sounds. And this story in Exodus chapter 32 reminds us of that. And so before we judge the Israelites, as quick and easy as it is to do that, I think it's also as quick and easy to actually relate to them. Because you have to remember, Moses has been the only point of contact with the Israelites for God. When God says something to Moses, he's saying something to the Israelites through Moses. And so they've left Egypt, they've left their home for, that's been their home for 400 years. And their only point of contact with God has been Moses. And Moses has been gone for days now, he's been gone for weeks now. And so they're probably thinking, well, he's probably dead. We're in the wilderness, we haven't seen him for 40 days. And so they take matters into their own hands. You can relate, right? I mean, the panic and the fear. Well, what if, we, what if we've lost our contact with God? What if we're stuck on the base of this mountain with nowhere to go and no God to turn to? What if we never make it to the promised land? The Israelites are thinking. And so they take matters into their own hands. In verse 1, it says they, that they tell Aaron, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You notice like the anger, you know, the the little jab, like this fellow Moses. Like they hardly know the guy who like led them out of Egyptian slavery and rained down plagues and led them through the Red Sea and all of this stuff. Like they hardly know this fellow. Get out of here. That's so mean. You know, don't be mean to Moses like that. But Aaron listens to them. In verses 2 to 4, it says, Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Now, I said it's a tragic comedy. There's a lot of little pieces of irony that are really funny. One of the examples is, in the ancient Near East, the symbol for obedience was ears. And so what the writer is saying is, Aaron said, hey, take off the earrings from the thing that resembles obedience, and I'm going to turn it into something that will resemble your disobedience. But, so Aaron listens, right, he has to take the earrings, and he says, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and then he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Now, and the calf, which, hilarious, truly hilarious story, uh, I, in first service, I said, a calf is a grown-up bull, for those of you who don't know animals very well, and no one, no one corrected me. <laughs> Torin came up to me after and was like, hey, man, a calf is actually like a baby bull, not a grown-up bull. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, you said it was a grown-up bull. And I was like, yeah, I did, and no one corrected me. Great, that's awesome. So (laughs) calves are baby bulls, okay? I know that. I totally know that. And uh, there were a common image, idol image in the ancient Near East. 
uh, they typically uh, represented like divine energy, fertility, strength, leadership. And they were often depicted, gods were often depicted riding a bull or had a, a bull-horned uh, headwear sort of thing. Uh, but it's also important to know that in the, in the ancient Near in fact, I think we have a picture. Some people, some people believe that the Israelites had basically created uh, an Egyptian god. There was an Egyptian god that was a bull. His name is like Apis. I don't, I don't speak Egyptian. I just know it's A-P-I-S. I don't know how to say that. But some people think like maybe this is the god that the Israelites have created. But, but before we like come to that conclusion, I think we have to actually consider, you see, most Old Testament scholars today, most uh, historians today, recognize that most ancient people, like the Israelites and the Egyptians, they, they didn't equate an idol with a god. So it wasn't like when you created an idol, you were like, this is the god. I worship this god. This god does everything for me. Instead, the idol was like an earthly representation of that god. So when you created an idol, you were basically saying, this is where that god resides. This is where that god's presence is. And so this is important to know because most Old Testament scholars today don't actually believe, like is taught sometimes, like I know for me in, uh, you know, little, uh, what's it called, Sunday school or whatever, like I always thought of this story as like the Israelites are like rejecting God and they're saying like, no God, Yahweh, like we're done with you, we don't worship you anymore, we worship this bull, this calf. And I was always like, the Israelites are kind of stupid, like why would they, it's a calf, it's a bull, you know, why would they do that? But it's actually much more likely, Old Testament scholars, historians today believe, it's much more likely that the Israelites in creating this golden calf have created an idol. And what they're saying is rather than saying, this is our God now, what they're saying is, this is where our God dwells. This is where his presence resides. Which is not good. And it's not good because the second wedding vow, the second commandment God told the Israelites is, do not build up a false image of me. Do not build up a false idol of me. You don't, basically God's saying, you don't control me. You don't get to build something that has my presence in it. And so the Israelites created an idol. Oof, not good. Not good at all. But then it gets even worse. It gets even worse because then at the end of verse 4, they say, they say this, they said, then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Everyone go. <gasps> That's pretty good. Maybe one more try. <gasps> oh, there it is. Music to my ears. Good. Oh, that's really bad. Okay, that's really bad because up until now, countless times, like over and over and over again in the book of Exodus, we've seen this, this appear in the book of Exodus. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. God says that like countless times throughout Exodus leading up to this. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. It's bas God's basically saying like, don't get it twisted, Israel. I am the one sole creator and the one soul I rule supreme. I am the one who brought you up out of Egyptian slavery into freedom with me. Me alone. Yahweh wants this ingrained into the Israelite minds. And so when they say, when they look at this calf and they say, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, what they're basically saying is, this is where your presence is, God. This is how we connect with you, and we created it. In other words, we're in control. Not good. Not good at all. You see, the Israelites are guilty of two things here. There's two things wrong that the Israelites have done here. The first, which is commonly talked about with this story, is idolatry. The Israelites have created an idol. 
Tim Keller defines an idol, and I love this definition. He says, anything that, an idol is anything that becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, and most importantly, your identity. You see, at the base of Mount Sinai, creating a golden calf was more important to the Israelites' happiness and identity than the God who had brought them out of Egyptian slavery and into freedom to where they were sitting at in that moment. The God who had been pouring his heart out to them, who had handpicked a man to act as a deliverer and a mediator, who had, who had rained down the powers of, of heaven in the plagues on Egypt, and who had literally brought heaven down to earth in the form of the law and the tabernacle. And the Israelites, rather than placing their identity and their happiness in that God, they created an idol. And here's the thing about idols. Idols aren't about bad behavior. Idols are at their very core about what you love. Idols are about what you love. You see, when the Israelites were scared and they were in a panic, much like they had tried to do at the Red Sea when the Egyptians had caught up to them, they tried to turn back to the ways of Egypt. They lived for Egypt. They loved Egypt. In Egypt, they could rely on their predictable labor, none of this unpredictable wandering in the wilderness. In Egypt, they could drink the waters of the Nile River, none of this bitter water from an occasional oasis in the desert. In Egypt, they could feast from the buffet of meat and bread till their hearts were content, none of this relying on God on a daily provision of manna. They lived for Egypt. They loved Egypt. Stephen, in the book of Acts, the early church martyr, even says this in a speech to the Israelites. He says, our ancestors refused to obey him, talking about God. He says, instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They lived for Egypt. They loved Egypt. But Exodus isn't just a story about the Israelites. Exodus is a story about us, too, though. Look at your neighbor and say, Exodus is a story about you. Exodus, Exodus is a story about us. You see, we do the same thing as the Israelites all the time. God is trying to lead us into freedom and away from all of the things that hold us in bondage, that hold us in sin. And so often when things get hard, we want to turn back towards those things and we create idols. To worship whatever it is, money, sex, power. Sometimes we even create idols to relate to God like a relationship or knowing the right rules or knowing the right theology. We create idols in, with, our, with our boyfriend or our girlfriend. We create idols with this house that we need to have. We create idols with our academics. We create idols with our jobs. And what we're doing is we're looking back. We're looking back to the very things God's trying to lead us out of. This past weekend, not this weekend, last weekend, Olivia, my wife, uh, she was just, tough stuff was going on. She wanted to pray uh, about some things, and um, she asked me to pray with her, which seems normal, right? Uh, and I was kind of, like, hesitant, but I prayed, but I just, like, listened. I didn't even say anything. And the reason I didn't say anything is because I just wasn't sure, like, what the right thing to say was. Not, like, in a humble way, but in, like, a prideful way like I need to know what the right thing to say is and so we got in this huge argument and even afterwards as I was reflecting like I realized like not this wasn't the first time that I realized but I have an idol in the sense that every time that I come to God when I'm when I want to talk with him when I want to pray I feel like I'm performing 
and that's taken, that's taken shape in different ways in my life. And currently, the way it takes shape is like, I feel like I need to know the right answers. Like, before I come to God, I need to know all of the right things, the right theology. Like, well, if you say this, you're really, like, saying this, and that's bad or whatever. You see, my, my desire to know the right answer is a selfish desire, really. To, to come, before I come to talk with God, completely stopped me from talking with him at all. This is an idol. And God's been trying to lead me out of this for a long time. But when I get angry or when I get tired or whatever, like, I turn back to the idol that I've created. Where's your Egypt? That's one of the questions I want to ask this morning. Where's your Egypt? What's the thing that God's trying to lead you out of and you keep turning back and creating idols? Where's your Egypt? The second thing that the Israelites are guilty of is trying to control and tame God. You see, by saying, by the Israelites claiming that this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, the, the Israelites are going back on the very first words that God said to them on, the, on Mount Sinai. They're basically going back on everything, and they're telling God, hey, God, we see things differently. You see, they took matters into their own hands. They wanted to climb up the mountain to God for help rather than let God come down the mountain to them. They wanted to climb up the mountain to God for help rather than let God come down the mountain to them. Which, see, Exodus is a story about us too, though. Look at your other neighbor and remind them, Exodus is a story about you. It's a story about us, right? Because when we get panicked, when we're in a fear, when we, when we feel like we don't have control, what we do is we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to climb up the mountain to God for help rather than let him come down to us. And so we make decisions and we claim, behold, this is the new boyfriend or the new girlfriend that I found that brought me up out of loneliness. Behold, this is the new house, the new car, the new shoes, the new clothes that I bought that brought me up out of darkness. Behold, this is the new method that I found and I perfected that brought me up out of addiction. You see, we climb up the mountain to God for help only to give something or someone else the glory. When I was in college, I was always concerned with what life after college was going to be like. Because that's what you do in life. You always look forward, you know. And for me, after college, I wanted the perfect job. I didn't know what the perfect job was, but I knew that I wanted it. And so I made decisions and networks and relationships and job experiences that I, I thought would put me in a position where when I graduated college, I would have that perfect job. Everything would come together and it would all be great. Not realizing that what I was doing was I was creating a golden calf. I was taking matters into my own hands. I wanted control of my life after I graduated college, and I wanted that perfect job. And so I was going to make that happen. But I got engaged, <laughs> which was a great thing, but it was also a hard thing. You see, Olivia had been accepted into Grand Valley State's PA program, and so we were moving to Grand Rapids. You can't do PA school remotely, unfortunately. And so from the time I got engaged to the time I got married and moved here, in those six months, I saw God, much like he had done with the Israelites, take my golden calf, burn it to the ground, disintegrate it, put it in a powder, and make me drink it. Like, I couldn't get an interview. I couldn't get a job. I had no networks. I had no relationships. I had nothing moving here. 
when we moved here, I still didn't even have a job. Full-time student and me not working. You do the math. How are we going to pay for rent? <laughs> I don't know. And I was so angry. I was so uncertain. I worried so much. Slowly, very, very slowly, I learned to just release some of that into God's hands. And let him lead me out of a deep state of uncertainty and worry and anger. So the other question I want to ask you this morning is, what's your golden calf? What's the thing that you're using because you're uncertain, you worry? What's the thing that you're using to take matters into your own hands? What's your golden calf? Now, lucky for us, this isn't the end of the story. And I want to fast forward. You see, Exodus chapter 32 is the first part of this story that continues on in chapter 33 and chapter 34. And I want to fast forward to the end of the story because there's some really cool and powerful stuff. But before we do that, a sermon like this can just feel like you're drinking from a fire hose and you get done and you're like, I feel like I didn't get to breathe. And so what I actually want to do is I want to take just one minute. Just one minute, we're going to bring the lights down. And if, you, if you're in a position, you know, maybe set your, set your books down, pins down, get comfortable. Uh, chairs against the back, legs on the ground, maybe your hands on your knees. And we're just going to spend a minute just listening to God. And identifying what, and listening to what he has to say to us this morning. Like, where are we at? Where are you at? Has anything become more fundamental to you than your, to your happiness, your identity than God? Or are, are you taking matters into your own hands and building up a golden calf? Ask God those questions. And if, if your mind wanders, just focus on these two questions. God, where is my Egypt? And God, what is my golden calf? And just, we're just going to listen. Just for a minute. Will you reflect with me? out of that time and I just ask that you would would you just hold on to that and would you carry that into our closing this morning I just pray that the Holy Spirit would just seal that whatever God wanted to say to you would he seal that as we continue this morning as we leave you see because the good news is that this isn't the end of the story this story comes to a, a halt or a conclusion at the end of chapter, or towards the beginning actually, of chapter 34. You see, the good news is that God speaks to people in the middle of their mess. 
God speaks to the Israelite people in the middle of their mess, even when they're still a wreck, even when they've run toward, back towards Egypt, even when they've created a golden calf, God steps in. And that's what we see two chapters later in like the moment in Exodus. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. You can look in your Bibles. We'll also have it on the screen. It says, and it's talking about God. He says, and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. This is massive. You see, God's doing two things here. God first is reminding them. He said this exact same thing in chapter 19 when the relationship was first created. When his covenant with them was created. This is what he said. Basically saying, hey, all this whole thing is going to be rooted in who I am. Because I'm the God that is this and I keep my promises. And after all this, the Israelites have run towards Egypt. They've created a golden calf. God is reminding them again of who he is. Which is incredible. But then the second thing, which is even, it's unfathomable, is God reveals himself to the Israelites unlike ever before again. It says he passes in front of Moses. Moses had asked God, show me your glory, which is like unheard of. You would never ask God to do that. But God obliges. God says, hide your face in this cliff and I'm going to allow my glory to pass by, which is nuts. God's never done that before. This is massive. This is the moment in Exodus. Did you know that this passage and the passage in chapter 19, the, those two passages, those are the most, arguably, the most quoted passages of the Bible by the Bible. Meaning that the biblical authors circle back to this moment. After all that the Israelites have done, they've run towards Egypt, they've created a golden calf. The biblical authors circle back to this moment more than any other passage in the Bible. They pray it, they allude to it, they sing about it, they complain about it, they argue about it. But most importantly, they believe it. That God is who he says he is, that he keeps promises. But why would God do this in, in this moment? Why would God do that? doesn't make sense after all that's been done the Israelites have run back towards Egypt they've created a golden calf and God steps in and reveals him reminds them of who he is and basically rekindles his relationship with them his covenant with them his marriage with them but then he even goes another step further and reveals himself unlike ever before again why would he do this you see I think it's because God wants to remind them he wants to remind the Israelites that his commitment to them his relationship with them doesn't take root in what they've done. It's rooted completely in who he is. After all this, God wants to remind the Israelites that my relationship with you, my commitment with you, isn't, doesn't take root in what you've done or what you will do. It's completely rooted in who I am. That's the good news. And here's the even better news. You thought it was like doom and gloom this morning. Okay, that's good news. Here's the even better news. That through Jesus... We have the same relationship that Moses and the Israelites had with God. You see, God doesn't stop pursuing the Israelites. God doesn't stop, or he doesn't abandon the Israelites. He speaks to them in the middle of their mess. And God does the same thing with us today. 
God doesn't stop abandoning us. God doesn't stop pursuing us. God speaks to us in the middle of our mess when we're still a wreck, when we've run back towards Egypt, when we've created a golden calf, not because of anything that we've done, but completely because of who he is. That's what God does. He is faithful, gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, but abounding in love and faithfulness. At the end of this whole story, it says Moses bowed down and worshipped. He bowed down to the ground and he worshipped God, which seems like the only fitting response, right? Moses and the Israelites, they had a a different or a a multi-level conception of what worship meant. Worship didn't just mean like coming together, just like it doesn't mean for us, like Jordan said. Worship doesn't mean just coming together to sing some songs. For the Israelites, worship also meant living a life that communicated, that portrayed the the truth and the the worthiness of their God, Yahweh. They had a name for this. They, They called it carrying the name. Carrying the name meant you walked around, and what we say, we have a language for this, we say spilling Jesus on people. Carrying the name meant you lived in such a way that you were a living, breathing example of what God was like, of what Yahweh was like. And because Jesus changes everything for us, We, like the Israelites, are meant to carry the name. You see, the only response this morning that seems proper, I think there's only one, is worship. To carry the name. You see, Jesus changes everything, and so no longer are you just a barista or a full-time student or a full-time parent or a teacher or a salesman or a saleswoman or a business person or an engineer or whatever your vocation is. You're no longer just that. No, you're a living, breathing example of what God is like. You carry the name. You carry the name. Because God has not stopped pursuing you, he hasn't abandoned you spoken to you in the middle of your mess and so that's what I want us to do this morning is to to go and carry the name and so this morning the church gathered to worship is now the church scattered to worship will you pray with me God thank you thank you so much for this morning God, we repent. We repent of any idols that we've created and the things that we've turned back to, the very things you're trying to lead us out of. God, we repent of the golden calves that, calves that we've built up, the way that we've tried to take our life into our own hands. We repent of that this morning, God. God, we thank you that you do not stop pursuing us just like the Israelites. You, you don't abandon us. You speak to us in the middle of your mess and you, you proclaim your glory. Give us your presence. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And the life and the freedom that we have in him. And so God, I just pray that this morning as we leave, that we would go and we would carry your name. That our response to to what you've said to us this morning would be a response of worship. That we are living, breathing example of what you are like. God, could we spill some Jesus on some people this week? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in each of our lives to make that happen. And we pray all of this, not in our name, but in the name of your son, Jesus, Father. To you be the hope and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.